entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. One of the things that David and I like to do on the Paracast is to deliver first-hand information. We want to find Absolutely. out something that's going on. We go to the source. Mm-hmm. Now, we have one radio show out there. It's a little bit larger than ours. They charge for their streams. And I'm going to read something here. All right. A disclosure about E.T. And it involves a guest we've had on the show, Dr. Stephen Greer. Mm-hmm. And according to this recap of a show... Dr. Stephen Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer shared secretive information about the ET presence that he said has come to him from corroborated sources. One of his associates who worked with Neil Armstrong at Purdue said that Armstrong told him, I'm going to stop right there. Armstrong told him, mm. who then told Stephen Greer. Uh, it's like the phone game. All right. Okay. So basically we're getting this third hand. Right. Okay. Now, this is not admissible in a court of law. And what bothers me about this is I'll assume Dr. Greer is quoting this guy accurately. We had Dr. Right. Greer on our show, and he seems an honorable gentleman. He seems to be quite serious about what he says. But now we have his friend who talked to Armstrong, who is detailing something Armstrong told that person. Uh, yeah. And, okay. Well, it's hard to really know what the reality is. It's, it's the phone game. The classic game of you tell this guy, he'll tell this person, they'll tell that person. By the time it gets to you, it's a different message. Hmm. And you don't know what was really said. But supposedly, when Armstrong landed on the moon, they were, quote, literally surrounded by ET vehicles. Whoa. No way. Come on. Really? That's what it says. No. Jesus. You know what? Here we go. Here's the problem with this field. There is so much nonsense out there it's not like when they landed there were no cameras rolling it's not like there wasn't live radio transmission stuff going on don't you think that if they had landed on the moon and been surrounded by et someone would have said something on the air what they would have said let me just try to hold this in okay i don't want to (laughs) overemphasize the point Ah! (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay oh it's just out there that's just so out there gene and I don't even know what to say. That's ridiculous. Well, I'll tell you something. We've been talking on recent shows about the story of Project Serpo, okay? Yeah. Right. All right. We had Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy talking mm-hmm. about Project Serpo. And I'll go and say, okay, it looks like they are working on this thing as seriously as they can. Sure. That sure. they believe that Project Serpo might have a kernel of truth. Now, David and I did something that's very difficult. There's something like a document with over 130 pages of Serpo information contains the original communications from this person called Anonymous, a very original name, of course. And I read this and something struck me. Okay. It wasn't a lightning bolt. I didn't have an epiphany, although that can be contagious. What I really had was an awareness that I have a son now who's a writer. He's 20 years old. And I remembered back to the time that he was 10 or 11 years old, exercising his writing muscles. Now, imagine two teenagers or preteens, and their view of the world is naive because they're not acquainted with advanced science yet. Their writing style has yet to mature, and they put together a science fiction story. And what do you see? If you read these diaries, supposedly from people who were part of the Serpo program, they read like they were done by 10 or 11 years old kids. 
There's okay. some interesting, yeah. I, I, you know, once you told me this, I went back and read the uh, read all that stuff again, Gene. And you have a very interesting point, and especially when there's discussion of the supposed sexual activities and interactions of these uh, these beings. It really did sound like a couple of twelve-year-old kids that weren't quite sure what intercourse was discussing intercourse it, it definitely read that way and, and that that was one of the many things that jumped out at me i think that your theory has a lot of potential i think it's very possible now here's the problem with the whole story and that is if you go to an adult and say that one or two 11 year olds and i suspect they're male just because of the kind of phraseology the concentration on a little bit of bathroom practices by the aliens and things like that i'm thinking in terms of boys here maybe one boy maybe two or three laughing up their sleeves the adult ego is not willing to accept the possibility that no. some kids fooled them but that's no, what it reads like to me. I think of my son and one of his friends at 10 or 11 years of age, and I could see them producing something like this, and I could look at the language and the syntax and everything else, and I say, that's what it is, and they were fooled. For the most part, Gene, I think that your theory has a lot of potential water, but the one thing that still jumps out to me about all of the SERPA documentation was the discussion of the energy device. That has wording and details in it that I think are beyond the capabilities of a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy or set of boys. And the thing that I asked Bill and Carrie on the show was whether or not a real physicist has looked at those details and given them any kind of feedback about the viability of the specific discussion of how the supposed energy device worked. That notwithstanding, that's the only thing that to me sort of stands out from the SERPO documentation. All of the earlier releases, what are supposedly the notes of the actual crew that went to this planet SERPO, I would have to agree with you. Those definitely seem to read like uh, they were written by adolescents. I think you have so you have a point there. Well, and the thing is here too. Some people suggest, well, it's a mixture. It's mostly disinformation. There's a kernel of truth, and maybe that's the point. People read the stuff written by the adolescents and say, "Hey, this is nonsense. I'm not going to read anymore." Yeah. And suddenly, a kernel of truth is in there. So, how do yeah. you figure it out? What we're going to try to figure out here is what the government may or may not know. <laughs> about UFOs, and we have Robert M. Collins, a former Air Force intelligence officer who's author of a book called Exempt from Disclosure. And he's coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story. 
story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Captain Collins, the book, Exempt from Disclosure, how did you happen to write this? Oh, well, it's uh, it's a long story. It's about a 20-year episode of uh, collecting information and talking to sources and uh, going behind the scenes and doing things, especially uh, assisting uh, uh, Bill uh, Moore and Jamie Shandera, which have kind of dropped out the whole scene. And, uh, but after they dropped out, I just continued to push on it and try to collect information and talk to my sources and actually talked to a lot of their old sources uh, since they've kind of let them go. I uh, kept, uh, kept in business with them and kept talking to them. And uh, that culminated in uh, enough, inf- enough information to uh, be able to write a book. And so I started putting it together, I think, in about 2004 and uh, collecting what I needed to, to make the book uh, coherent and uh, kind of uh, consistent throughout the book. And um, and then uh, sort of the end of 2004, uh, I started uh, writing the book, essentially writing the book. And then in 2005, uh, we got the first edition out there. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, we're talking to Captain Robert Collins, a former Air Force intelligence officer, believe it or not. And he is an author of the book Exempt from Disclosure, subtitled The Disturbing Case about the UFO cover-up. Now, for those of our listenership who don't remember William Moore, of course, he was one of the people who brought to the attention of Stanton Friedman the MJ-12 documents. And were you somehow involved in that, too? Back in the 80s, I, uh, I saw Bill quite a bit. We used to interface and talk on the phone quite a lot. And with Jamie Shandera and, of course, uh, Rick Doty was involved in that, too. As far as the MJ-12 documents, uh, Bill showed them to me when I was in a motel room in 1986. Uh, I was out there, part of my Air Force duties, uh, trying to meet with TRW there in L.A. And uh, we met in a motel room, and then Bill came up. And, uh, of course, I had my uh, then ex-girlfriend with me, and she looked at him, too. It's the first time I've ever seen those documents. I never had access to that kind of information when I was in the Air Force. Although I had uh, contact with a lot of people who did have access to the information, and they used to talk to me quite a bit. So uh, I can say, frankly, that I saw the MJ-12 documents for the first time in that motel room back in 1986. Now, those documents speak of an agency called Majestic 12, part of the government that basically controlled the dissemination of UFO information. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh Uh-huh. Now, this has been highly disputed. 
Some people say that the documents are fake. You, more, I gather, also Stan Friedman believe it's real. So what do we know about those documents to say they're real and not fake? Well, I think uh, there was a, a Westcott a forensics uh, language expert at uh, Drew, is it Drew University. I can't remember all the details on that, about way back, because this goes back to the 80s. Sure. Uh, um, that he looked at those MJ-12 documents and said that the writing style uh, matches that of Helen Cotters, who was supposed to have been the author of that uh, MJ-12 document. And so uh, from that and from other, I think they did a type check on that. I can't remember all the details of what they did, but as far as all the experts are concerned, they, and I, I happen to agree with them that uh, the, uh, the document's authentic, and I agree with Stan Friedman on it. I think that Stan Friedman has stated on our show that he thought that some of the documentation related to MJ-12 was authentic, but then he had some concerns about other parts of the release. Do you have any information on that? Bob Wood, who uh, did a lot, and of course with Ryan Wood, which is his son, uh, did a lot of forensics on the uh, so-called new MJ-12 documents, not the Eisenhower document, mm -hmm. and uh, they agree with Stanton on a few of the points he's made, and a few of them seem to, seem to be emulations or, or copies of other documents by the same people. And uh, uh, Bob can't refute that. He can't understand that. The only way I can understand that is because when I was in the Air Force, we used to emulate uh, the language and other documents uh, so we wouldn't have to do so much writing. We just would literally copy what we wrote before in some other document or what somebody else had written and just put it in our document and send it on as, a, as an official letter. Oh, boy. That, that's the only one where we, I can answer. I know the Air Force people, we used to do that a lot. We used to emulate other documents or copy things out of other documents and, and send them on as, a, as part of what we, we were doing. Oh, so this is a stylistic kind of thing. When you emulate things, you, can, you change a few of the words. Okay. Uh, you, know, you can change a few of the words, which may affect uh, style somewhat, but uh, the experts say even changing a few words doesn't change style. So that's um, more of a format issue than a content issue, really. Right. It was a common practice that you take your own documents or the th your own things that you had written, copy them, put them out on another document, and send on so you wouldn't have to think about new words to write in order to get the thing out of the office. Okay, it's a bike a boilerplate then, where if you've already written the article, there's no sense writing it all over again, so you take the stuff that you've already done and right. you just represent right. it. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's the only way I can explain those emulations of Stanton complains about all the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was something that's really standard procedure as opposed to being anything that's suspicious. Right. It's, it's a procedure I used to use all the time. Yeah, I used to use it because I, I just, like everybody else, we get lazy. <laughs> okay, that's a so, good reason. <laughs> well, let's get the formatting out of the way, and let's talk about content. Captain, what is the core of the book, The Exempt from Disclosure? I mean, I've ordered it. I haven't read it yet. Uh, what's, let's just cut right to the bottom line. In the research that you did for The Exempt from Disclosure book, what problems did you find with the MJ-12 documents, or what things did you find that supported what the MJ documents claimed? It, uh, most of the way, the way I, um, of course, I use Bob Wood quite a bit because we get along quite well, and uh, he tells me a lot of the stuff he's doing with forensics, but I've got a lot of sources that I use to corroborate the, uh, the information in those documents, and I take mm -hmm. them, well, here in Dayton, I can do that physically with one source and then have him corroborate them. 
say, yes, I saw this, or yes, I saw that, or this is true, or that's not true, or this is what I saw back in such and such time. And uh, I uh, use other sources that, of course, are away from me to do uh, the checking for me and send, yeah, send there to their sources who are most, well, a lot of them are in Washington, D.C., who have had uh, deeper access, let's say deeper access to this stuff, and have them uh, either say yes or no. And they come back to me, and, uh, and that's how I do my checking. And then, of course, I cross, as I said before, I cross-check that with what Bob Wood is saying. Mm -hmm. I, I cross-check all these things to make sure that what's in that book, or at least 95% sure or 80% sure what's in that book is real. And so your sources, who are presumably military sources, have well, confirmed... Well, they're military, military. Well, they're out of the military now, but they were military at one time. Okay, okay. So these sources are confirming some of the more uh, extreme claims of MJ-12. Yeah, just like the, the, uh, uh, to start out with, you know, to show how these things go, uh, Rick's father, Charles, was very involved in this stuff. In fact, as he was involved with the Roswell crash, of course, he never says very much. And uh, Rick's uncle was also extremely involved in that stuff. It's in the book. All the stuff is in the book. This is Richard Doty, right? Yeah, Richard Doty's uncle and father are both deeply involved in all this, all the uh, UFO stuff, and then involved in uh, some of the crash recoveries. In fact, his uh, Rick's uncle went to uh, a 1954 class at Los Alamos in crash recoveries that he said he attended. Uh, a class on crash recoveries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Los Alamos used to have classes on, on crash recoveries. That uh, Psalm 101. Is, was their tech order for that class? Whoa, that's See, the that first was, I've ever was, heard that, of that. That was that kind of that Psalm 101 is like a field tech order, and it's you know when we used to work on aircraft, we used to use tech orders as a guide to, to in a way to fix the airplanes. Well, they had tech orders for crash recoveries, too. And Psalm 101 is that you can see the TO number at the top of the, uh, it's called tech order, TO number. At the top of Psalm 101, there's a, uh, which is a procedure to tell people who are in crash recoveries how to recover these items and what to do with them. So they wouldn't have been able to develop such a procedure unless some sort of an event like that had actually happened. Sure. Yeah, they were, there were a number of crashes. Uh, of course, we got Roswell in 1947, and the planes of St. Augustine's, I think, was recovered and crashed in 47, but wasn't recovered until 1949. And there are probably other crashes that I'm not aware of that they used that as a base to establish those classes and write that tech order. Hmm. So presumably, these materials then, in terms of technologies and then the stories of creatures, actual entities, uh, these things are still presumably in the possession of the government then. Right. I understand that they have warehouses full of these, um, what they call donated or recovered items. And the reason they just sit in the warehouse is because they don't understand them and they're waiting for the technology to catch up. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Okay, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Viedney. We're talking to Robert M. Collins. 
And he is author of Exempt from Disclosure, second edition, subtitled The Disturbing Case About the UFO Cover-Up. And Richard Doty also contributes to that book. And we're talking about some very unusual things that I guess, I suppose, that you found to be authentic. Now, this whole subject of government documents, what the government knows, etc., etc., is hotly disputed. For those who don't believe any of this, what do you tell them? I don't know what to uh, It's hard to tell anybody what, what they should believe or not to believe or uh, the skeptics or, you know, um, what they should read. But uh, all I can say is like when anybody else would say, it's just keep an open mind. I've uh, seen these UFOs myself uh, personally, and I know that it's real just from the, those sightings themselves. Convince me of 100% that uh, the whole UFO issue is real. So all I can say to those kind of people is just keep an open mind. Could you tell us a little bit about your sightings? Uh, well, one was in October 1997, daytime over Phoenix, Arizona, uh, where I had uh, a couple of them in binoculars, and they morphed or changed shape as I watched them in broad daylight. And the other one was in January of uh, 1998, which was at night, same place over Phoenix, uh, actually Tempe, Arizona, um, where there were I had 14 of them in binoculars. And I could watch the airplanes making the approach to the Sky Harbor Airport go right by some of these huge uh, luminous spheres. And uh, these spheres, the aircraft were, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to, the aircraft were tiny. You could barely see the aircraft next to these spheres. The spheres are so big. These were spheres, yeah, uh, these not this. These kind of like the, well, what, they, what people were calling flares. Well, these flares in binoculars were huge spheres. They weren't flares. And um, besides the spheres, there were other saucer-shaped ones around the mountain areas, hovering in and out of the mountain areas. And you could see the dome. You could see the, you know, see the dome, and then the disc area on, on the. This is at night, of course. Of course, and uh, binoculars, uh, a lot of it, a lot of that uh, dim night stuff comes out very well. Mm -hmm. Is this an area known for UFO activity? The specific area sure, you're sighting? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, they, they still have quite a number of UFO sightings out there from what I understand, though. I haven't, uh, I haven't heard anything recently. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to these documents. Now, you're saying that the government put some of this technology on ice because they didn't understand what to do with it. That almost sounds like the movie we talk about several times on the show which was Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they take the Ark of the Covenant at the end of the movie and they stick it inside of a government warehouse and it stays inside the government warehouse because they can't figure out what to do, so it's catching dust. So is there alien technology nowadays catching dust inside some governmental facility of some kind? Oh, I'm sure there is, but I'm sure they've got people who go in there and clean. So I, I'm sure they're cleaning dust off these things or whatever they might be. You know, as far again, I'll say that uh, this is—I've never seen any of these warehouses. I've never been in these warehouses, but this is what all the sources are telling me. Now, there also are theories and stories, and you've heard of some of them, such as this Project Serpo, <laughs> that I don't necessarily believe for various reasons. I'll explain later. But we have claims like that—that that at some point in time. We interacted with aliens, had some kind of alien exchange program, whatever. Do you believe in any of that stuff? Um, as far as Serpo is concerned, a lot of that information, in, in my opinion, is garbage. 
it's uh, and uh, working with uh, counterintelligence people for over 20 years, I understand the things they do. And uh, it seems like they can never tell a true story as a true story. They always have to mix it in with a lot of nonsense and baloney. Uh, for whatever reasons they do those things uh, and uh, uh, actually corrupt the story. So I spent a lot of my time fishing through all their nonsense to pull out what's real and then discard the rest. Well, looking at the documents myself, I read the Project Serpo stuff that was posted by Bill Ryan and at the Serpo website. And some of it read to me like it was written by teenagers or preteens who had a very naive, innocent writing style and maybe lacked knowledge about UFOs. And that may be mixed with other stuff. But then how do you even know or care if some of it, so much of it is garbage? Yeah, it's a creative writer, uh, whoever he was. <laughs> Uh, but they, they, they mix in true information with the false information. And it's called, uh, well, there's a name for that, and it's called uh, cr- uh, cr- uh, credible denial or reasonable denial or whatever words you want to use. In other words, the whole psychology is that if we send out this information, but we mix it up with false stuff, uh, and people start to panic over it, we can back off. We can deny the whole thing because it's got false information in it. And the, the other name, Munster, I can come up with is plausible denial. Right, right. But this is this is a uh, technique that counterintelligence people have been using for God knows whoever and for how long, since even before 1947. Uh, and this is the way the uh, Iraq war has been handled, too. It's the same they, they send out bits and pieces, but they don't tell you the whole story. Okay, so looking at all this stuff, and I've read hundreds of pages of this stuff, and how do you sift the real stuff from the plausible deniability factor? Well, I, I guess I have an advantage over what other people have to do. I, I have access to sources that can tell me what they've learned and what they know and I compare with what, what's in the Serpo information. And, and this, this information I'm getting is, it's been over 20 years. It just isn't something that happened a year ago. And I take that information, plus other things I know from the physics and the astrophysics of what's in that Serpo information, and I can pull out what's real and what's not real. Right, I don't know if that sounds uppity or, or uh, but it's just the kind of, and I've been doing that for over 20 years, or, or it sounds uppity or kind of arrogant, but that's what I've been doing. That's what that's- I do. And, and it's a, it's a constant job, and it, it, it puts you 8 to 10 or 14 hours a day just doing that kind of stuff. All right. That's, that, that sounds fine, uh, Robert. So that said, can you tell us what's real in that document? Uh, well, to give you an example. I'm, I, I, can, I, I can tell you what's, what's not real is the stuff about Zeta Reticuli. That's mm-hmm. not real. Mm-hmm. What's real? is the, and I'll, I'm only going to zero on one because I don't have it in front of me, is the, uh, when the source said it was a fourth planet from the set of sun. Well, that fourth planet is the, uh, there is a fourth planet from Zeta 2, which is the planet that EB-1 comes from, called Sue. So when he said the fourth planet, that connected in with other information I had going years back about where these aliens came from. But but both Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 are not close binaries. They're spread 360 billion miles apart. 
Oh, it's just a walk in the park in terms of right. interstellar space. Right, it's a walk in the park, but they're not they're not close binary. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Robert M. Collins, former Air Force captain, intelligence officer, and I'll ask him about that experience in a moment. He is one of the authors, the main author of Exempt from Disclosure's second edition, The Disturbing Case about the UFO cover-up. It's available from Amazon Books and other sources. Let me ask you before we go on, what's the difference between the first edition and the second edition? Um, I uh, cleaned out a lot of, of, uh, in, of uh, mistakes, uh, mostly uh, bad editing mistakes in the first book, and uh, added new material. Uh, especially on Area 51, added new material on the reverse engineering, and then took out some material that was questionable that I didn't trust myself, so I removed it. Okay, a lot of the stuff that you're telling us, we have to depend on the fact that you have some secret government sources that provide you with this information. So why is Robert Collins getting this and not Stanton Friedman or other people? Uh, I guess I've had a personal relationship with these people going uh, as far back as uh, 1985. And, uh, of course, I established that relationship when I was working with Bill Moore and Jamie Chandra. So I guess I established those connections well well back so that uh, uh, that friendships developed and contacts developed. And, of course, other people didn't have those friendships or contacts. Is it your sense, Robert, that uh, given that these people are willing to start talking now, that we're getting closer to a point where an actual true disclosure will be forthcoming or more of a larger scale disclosure? My, my opinion on that is that uh, I don't think the government's ever going to disclose anything unless they get forced to do that. Politicians are politicians, and I think the recent political uh, ongoings in Washington show you that. And uh, they're not going to stick their necks out and jeopardize their political careers to disclose things like this. But isn't there an argument that the politician who has the guts to actually make a bunch of this information available will strengthen his or her power base? Yes, that's, that's, that's a good argument, but you also look at the other side of that coin, it, it also could, a whole thing could unravel. If they, if they have a, a public reaction, even a small, say, 10% of your public would, would violently react to this whole thing, uh, you'd have huge political problems on your hands. Do you think at this point, though, with the proliferation of this material in popular culture, do you think that a large-scale reaction would be necessarily negative? And in some ways, I almost imagine, I could be completely wrong about this, but perhaps people would welcome this information at a time when so much of 
our political system doesn't seem to make much sense. I don't know if this will make it make any more sense, but I think that is there not a hunger in people for truth versus propaganda? Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but some people, uh, uh, like your uh, right wing, uh, would do anything to, to suppress this information because it would jeopardize their entire belief system. And I think you know this. Um, hmm. That's that 10% I'm talking about. And then again, you know, this you have to think about. You have to think about what you're up against. This is not a walk in the park. This is alien. This is thousands or twenty or or many thousands of years um, uh, ahead of us. And, and think about that, because I've I've dealt with some of this stuff, and and it's it's you got to realize it's alien. It's not human. It's alien. And so it's it's completely different than anything you'd ever be used to or could get used to. All right, but the other issue here is that how can the government keep it secret this long? What about the aliens themselves? Don't they have a say in this? If the aliens are really among us, can't they decide one day, hey, now we're going to decide for ourselves when Earthlings will know about us or not? Oh sure, yeah, yeah, sure. They could do it at any time of their choosing. But you, uh, uh, the only reason, from again, from sources that uh, uh, inform me of this stuff, is that they 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 are holding back for the sake of the governments. They're not, they're, and that's the only reason they're holding back. They'd like to make this stuff known tomorrow if they could, from what I understand. But and of course, then the governments are never going to really, as I said before, really do anything because of the political ramifications it might have on their power positions of the people in those positions and, and how they might be affected by those things. So that statement then assumes that there is an active working relationship between extraterrestrial interests and Earth interests. Yes, but I don't know what, at what level. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know the day-to-day, -day, excuse me, the things that go on or at what level um, this interaction takes place at. Has your research uncovered any elements or clues as to an alien agenda in this whole situation? Other than what we all read in the abduction books um, about, well, of course, we all know uh, what goes, what's in those books by uh, Dave Jacobs and, and uh, John Mack and, and the rest of them. Uh, uh, I guess from those books you could say that they describe an agenda. Of course, I don't know what that outcome would be or what, what, what kind of agenda you really have if, in terms of genetics because when you start playing with genetics, you could, you're going to have a lot of failures. And I don't know how long these so-called hybrids really live. And I understand they don't live very long. Now, hybrids, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, he's talking about a being that's created by joining the genes of an alien with the genes of an earthling. Okay. Okay. Is that is that my understanding is correct, right? Uh, no, that that's that's a good understanding. Okay. Uh, so, but I, as I say, I don't understand how. Uh, I don't know the particulars of how long they live. I've heard about them in many many stories, especially from some of the sources who some of them seem to have intimate knowledge of uh, how they mix in society. But I don't, from what I understand, they just don't live very long. Oh, I guess I wouldn't want to be one of those. That, that goes back to a cloning process where you see the, a lot of uh, clones that um, die off pretty quickly. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to 
News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Robert Collins, retired Air Force captain, and we understand he was an intelligence officer, chief analyst in theoretical physics at the Foreign Technology Division, now NASIC. He's the main author of Exempt from Disclosure, the second edition, subtitled The Disturbing Case About the UFO Cover-Up. And you can find out more information if you go to your favorite book reseller. There's a big listing for it at Amazon books. Robert, this may be a difficult question to answer, but you're coming out with all this material. What do your former bosses at the Air Force think of what you're doing? Have they come to you and said, Robert, uh, no, no, no. Uh, well, my, my former board's bosses uh, really uh, didn't have access to this stuff. And uh, some of them are just as skeptical. You can't imagine because you work in an intelligence agency that therefore all the people in that agency have access to this kind of material, and they don't. Uh, something like uh, uh, roughly 98% of anybody or a group of people that work in intelligence agencies are, are kept in the dark. And it's maybe 1% or 2% that really have access to this, this kind of material. At what level are those 1% or 2%? Are we talking about people who have been in the, in the military for quite a long time? I suppose we're not talking about any elected officials because presumably, I mean, if you were the president of the United States, after four or eight years, you're gone. So is the presumption that a president can't be trusted with this material, but someone who's entrenched in the military, who's going to be there for 30, 40 years, can have access to this? What's the delineation? Well, it, it's the old saying is that uh, uh, you don't pick, you don't pick them; they pick you. Mm -hmm. uh, so the uh, agency, whatever it is, MJ12 or whatever you want to call it, uh, they pick the person. You don't pick them. They decide on their own which uh, person or, or group of people will have access to this material and which don't. I understand that most of the presidents have been read into this program. Uh, Clinton was read in and taken to, uh, let's see, he was taken to Los Alamos, I think, in 94. I understand. Of course, Bush has been read in, and of course, Bush one was read in. Of course, Bush one was the CIA director, and he had, uh, as CIA director, he had direct access to this material too. All right, so they know this stuff, and I suppose when they're read into it, they understand the reasons the government might have for keeping this stuff a secret. Uh, and even if your bosses at the Air Force weren't involved in this, aren't there people in the Air Force and the Pentagon somewhere who look at what you write and say, he shouldn't be saying that? Or do you think that maybe you're being misled? Maybe you're spreading disinformation and you're not aware of it? Well, that's, uh, that's a consideration. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we, this phone line's been tapped. We, we, I've done uh, line traces on it. We use a piece of test equipment called a Tektronik, which is uh, this particular piece of equipment is owned by one of my sources who uh, in the past has periodically checked my phone for wiretaps, and uh, we've come out with uh, big hits. It uh, <laughs> has, been, has been wiretapped, and it's been wiretapped continuously since about 1998. So we assume then that this conversation we're having where we've had some connection difficulties, ladies and gentlemen, you're saying maybe that's because the tap is working. 
I'll, I don't know if that's the case. I don't, I don't really know what you're doing on your end, but you can just assume that uh, phones are tapped and email, of course, is, is uh, trapped. Uh, but I just assume that on a continuing basis that's been done all the time. But they don't do anything that's overt to you. The, you know that you're being tapped, for example, but nobody's coming to you and saying, we know what you know. Uh, well, they go to my friends. They don't go to me. <laughs> they try the to FBI, stop the sources. The FBI, the FBI has gone to my friends and inquired with my friends about my activity, especially with those uh, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency documents in the book. Back when those first came out, there was a big ruckus, and the FBI did an investigation. Uh, uh, but, of course, they never came to see me, and I was waiting for them. And uh, uh, we, we know, as I said before, we know that uh, uh, we're being constantly monitored uh, by NSA. And, of course, NSA, uh, they tell you that it's all being done for the reasons of terrorism. But it's, uh, we know that they, they track uh, people who, um, who actively talk and participate or write about UFOs, and they actively track that, too. Can you give us a little bit more detail on those documents you just cited, Robert? Well, if you get the book, they're in the book. Well, I, I did they, order the book, but I don't the, have it yet. The, oh, okay. The DIA documents themselves are describe uh, an, an alien energy device called a, a crystal rectangle or an ED, which is means energy device, and uh, describe its uh, the characteristics, some of the physics of the device that was carried on Columbia, and other space shuttles, and it was carried. It was uh, carried on the on the space station, and was tested on the space station. All that stuff is in those documents, uh, which are in the book. This uh, crystal rectangle, this energy device, is one of the um, more fascinating things in one of the most recent SERPO disclosures. And I actually uh, was quite taken with the descriptions of it, and actually thought that that description read very differently than the rest of the SERPO documentation. Can you tell us a little bit more of the detail of this crystal rectangle energy device and presumably then if this went up in the Columbia, was this lost? Um, we assume that it was lost when Columbia went down, and, uh, but they had more than one. And uh, it's, uh, well, the description is, it's, unless you, and I had to sit there, I wouldn't want to read it because it gets very, the documents are very technical. And um, and you'd have to sit down and uh, under a nice uh, lamp or something and <laughs> and read them several times through before you'd understand what they're saying. But it describes uh, uh, an energy device uh, they recovered in 1947, and uh, according to what the documents say, that Edward Teller and others didn't really understand what they were until 1996. And as far as the documents uh, that were put out by uh, on Serpo, some of that information is correct and some of it's wrong. And if we go back to the old arguments of uh, true-false information being put out by the so-called Annan source. And when I responded to that uh, particular document that he had put out and corrected a lot of things that he had put in there or confirmed them, or denied them or said they were false, uh, he got upset with me. It got back through uh, Victor, uh, who was out in L.A. and does that uh, mail list. That's Victor Martinez, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. He's yeah. uh, The source got upset with me because I was correcting him. Uh-oh. <laughs> you can't do that to sources. That's not good. Right. And, uh, just like I, uh, I think I corrected the information on uh, the Zeta Reticular Star System, and I understand that 114 people got upset with me. <laughs>
Robert, you talked about the notion of more than one of these um, energy devices existing. Does that presume that more than one was recovered, or is that a statement that perhaps we figured out how to make this thing? Uh, well, I understand there was more than just one recovered, um, and, and I really don't know how many. I know for a fact in those documents that are in the book that it talks about two different energy devices. We know there are mm -hmm. at least two. So I don't know how many more beyond the two that they have since the Los Alamos source leaked those documents to me along with other things and which uh, the descriptions I just said contradict with what the Annan source said about in the Servo documents that he put out. I don't know how many more of those EDs they might have. Today, right now, do you think that the government is currently in regular touch with people from Zeta Reticuli or some other star system? Uh, again, I don't know that question or can't answer that question. Uh, um, it, it could be, it could be, it could not be. I don't know what daily activities go on because I don't have access to it. How about uh, the feeling of your sources in terms of this being an ongoing thing? Because in talking about them not figuring out the functionality of this energy device until the late 90s, this makes it sound like this is very current research that's going on. Yeah, well, from what I understand, uh, again, from the documents the Los Alamos source sent me, uh, they're doing an extensive amount of laboratory uh, work on trying to create uh, the element H5, which is the fifth isotope of uh, hydrogen, and get it to be and get it to be stabilized because H5 out there by itself is very unsta unstable. But inside this crystal rectangle. H5 is very, very stable, and it, it acts as a catalyst to collect energy from the vacuum. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, $19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. 
I have to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And if you're wondering why we have a little distortion around some of the comments, well, <laughs> our guest, Robert Collins, author of Exempt from Disclosure, second edition, the disturbing case about the UFO cover-up, says that his phone has been tapped over the years, and we noticed that David's comments have a little distortion about them. We hope that you'll bear with us. So now I'm going to ask you, what is H5 in layman's terms? What can it do for us? Uh, it, it, it's, um, it's like a tr- uh, a, a hydrogen, which is one proton. And then you've got tritium, which is one pro, one proton and two neutrons, and you've got you've got the H5, which is one proton and four neutrons. Or they call it pentagon, which is the first time I've ever heard of that term. But that's supposed to be the name for the H5. And uh, the biggest problem they have at Los Alamos is is from again from what I've been told is finding ways to stabilize it so they can use it as a catalyst to extract energy out of the vacuum. Okay. Okay, we've had over the years in the UFO field and related fields all sorts of stories about free energy, new energy sources, that our government has had these sources either because of their own developments or because they were able to achieve this contact with aliens and getting their alien technology. We had stories that Nikola Tesla developed things that third parties have dealt with, such as the late Otis T. Carr. So does the government have free energy today from whatever source? As far as I know, uh, no. Uh, there's a, a person in Austin, Texas, I think you've heard of him, Hal Putoff, mm-hmm. who uh, is into a lot about zero-point energy technologies and uh, theories. And uh, to this date, he, uh, they have found no device that successfully extracts energy out of the vacuum that can be used for commercial applications. Uh, and it has a high uh, reliability and uh, uh, good energy uh, uh, ratio output to input. Uh, uh, so he tells me that he has tested all these so-called free energy devices and found none of them to be viable. And, that's, and he does all that work, and he does it on a daily basis, uh, seven days a week sometimes. What's been his comments about the details that have been released in the Serpo documentation in your book about this energy device? What does he think about this particular device? Well, he simply tells me he doesn't know. Since, they, uh, since it takes an enormous laboratory uh, process to create this H5 and try to stabilize it, there hundred, you're talking in uh, millions of hundreds of millions of dollars in the equipment used to uh, try to accomplish this. And sure. He doesn't have, he doesn't have those kind of budgets. So. But what about the specific physics described in these documents? I mean, at the outside, I would think that someone who was a physicist or a nuclear engineer could look at this information and just get an overall feeling about the validity of it. Forget the, you know, the laboratory aspect of it. Uh, well, they, you get one or two opinions. You get the group that says it's a bunch of bunk and nonsense, and you get the other group that says we don't know. We really don't know uh, whether this is real or not because we don't, first, they don't have access to it, and second of all, they don't have the means where off to uh, replicate or try to reproduce the uh, results. They, uh, mm-hmm. They're very skeptical that any of that uh, could be could be true. But of course, it doesn't mean it's not true. Right. Now that gets to be even even stranger. Let's look at the future and look at what the government may or may not be planning to do. Now, from what you said earlier in the show, it looks like they want to keep it a secret as long as they possibly can. But what do people like Robert Collins and other people who write 
write books and articles about hidden information. What do you guys do to make sure this information gets to the public unvarnished and that you're not part of the problem, that you're not being fooled yourself into providing disinformation? Well, I, I, uh, all I can say on that, on that account is that uh, uh, we, I guess we try our best and, uh, you know, try our best to cooperate with sources and check information and, and uh, make sure that uh, we're not being fooled. I have caught, I've caught a lot of disinformation, caught a lot of uh, people uh, trying to fool us, but uh, you never know. Sometimes you may get fooled and never know it. Uh, but I think we all feel pretty confident that what we're saying right now is correct. At least 80 percent or more of it is correct. So where do you go from here now? You've got the second edition of the book. I would gather people in the UFO field will be discussing it as we're discussing it on the show. Some will accept it. Some will not accept it. So what do you do and what do you tell the people out there in looking over the tons and tons of information we've got out there. And you can spend months without interruption, without sleeping, and never cover all the information that's out there about UFOs and related subjects. So what do you tell our listeners about figuring out what's true, what isn't, and what might have a kernel of truth within all the disinformation? Well, uh, should I say uh, read the uh, read the book? Okay, sure. Uh, because what's in the book is uh, what I think is the core story, uh, minus all the uh, nonsense, or should I call it BS? But I would say read the book, and because uh, uh, it, it it gives you the core story. And as the reviewers on Amazon say, you've got to read it uh, uh, a couple times through to to get the full content of what's in the book. Because there's been a lot uh, packed into 192 pages. Now I know David's expecting his copy, which may be here by the time you folks listen to this broadcast, and he's going to be talking about that in the near future. Any further comments, David? I just wanted to know, Robert, is there anywhere on the Internet where you have a discussion forum set up for people to give you feedback about the book or to discuss their findings on reading it? Well, David, all I use is the email, and it works pretty well. Uh, I don't have any forums or unless the uh, uh, other – there are so many forums that have been set up that I, I wouldn't want to really get into that. I mean, but uh, when I get questions asked, uh, they, uh, the email address is posted to the website. Okay. And they can just go to that website and get the email address, and um, I'll try to answer the questions. Well, we have a fairly active forum on our website, Robert. I'm sure that once I start reading the book, I'm going to be starting up a discussion thread on the Paracast forums to discuss the things that questions and the revelations that I have about the book. So for sure, there'll be discussion on our website. Okay. And we invite you to participate in that. That's at thepowercast.com. I'll send you the link to it, okay, Robert? So if you want to answer questions from listeners, we welcome you listeners to come there, and we're happy to host a topic forum on this subject and see where it goes. Maybe we'll elicit more information. Again, I want to thank you very much, Robert Collins, retired Air Force captain, for joining us on the Paracast. Once again, his book is called Exempt from Disclosure, Second Edition, The Disturbing Case About the UFO Cover-Up. And you can get a copy at Amazon Books or order from your favorite book reseller. And we appreciate you coming on. We hope to have you on again soon. Robert Collins, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. All right. You're welcome very much. And uh, you have a nice day. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
Okay, so we come out with, for my money, more questions than answers. I have to tell you, Gene, I really like it when guests come on our show and they talk to us about their material. I, I have a little bit of an issue with people come on the show and say, well, it's in the book. We know it's in the book, but, you know, you're on the show. Tell us what's going on. You got the book. Yes, I did get the book after we did the interview, and I started reading it. And uh, uh, it's you start to appreciate how things like The Day After Roswell were written, Corso and Bill Burns' book, which is a really well-written book, versus this book, which... Uh, is is it's i got through the first couple of chapters and and just the writing style alone gene is pretty painful it's not an it's not a pleasant read the information is kind of interesting it's in some ways it feels like a rehash of some of the stuff that we've heard about before and and i have to dig through the book deeper but i think there's even stuff about serpo in there which you know uh, you know i'd like to do we know, based on some various messages we've seen online, that Dr. Stephen Greer and Captain Collins are in wide disagreement about a couple of subjects here. Really? That's to okay. put it mildly. I'd love to put them together on the same phone call and have them go after each other to discuss these issues. I can't guarantee that's going to happen because that kind of debate seldom occurs in this field. The confrontation the personal debate and the information. I don't know if we could make it happen, but I'd like to make it happen. I'd like to have that kind of debate. And maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. We'll talk about it on the next episode. Just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the Paracast, send your email to news at com. That's news at com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to com and click on the links to our message forums. We welcome you aboard. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. One of the most bizarre aspects of paranormal activity that has actually been used by the government is remote viewing, the technique of looking into places where you aren't actually physically present. On today's Paracast, we'll have Paul Smith, a leading remote viewer and author of Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's psychic espionage program on the Paracast. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at 
theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. So, Paul, for those who are kind of new to this subject, what is remote viewing all about? What does it mean? Well, remote viewing, um, I, I like to, you know, simple explanation, I like to say it, it's a form of controlled clairvoyance where you're able to, through your own consciousness, send it, or send it in scare quotes here, send it some uh, someplace where you aren't and actually able to perceive details, facts, images, and, uh, you know, abstract ideas and things about that particular, as we call it, a target. The military definition is it's, it's the ability through mental means alone to perceive and describe a target that is distant from the viewer, shielded from the viewer by shielding, by distance, or by time. Or a VSP, essentially. No, that term by time, is that the idea that if you remote view, you can move backwards and forwards in a temporal line, timeline as well? That's exactly what that means. Hmm. Um, we do what's known as retrocognition, and to some degree, you have access to precognition as well. Oh, boy. Is this something anybody could learn, or what? Yeah, um, anybody can learn it. That's the irony of all this ESP stuff, of course. You know, you, on TV, you see folks, and, and you hear all the stories, and you can go to psychics. And, and the, the message they try and present is you have to be talented or gifted to be able to do this, right? Well, in many cases, that's just an attempt to present their turf and not let anybody else in. <laughs> the fact is that the underlying that, that humans have this underlying faculty that allows them it, it's inborn allows them to be able to do this. It's just that most humans aren't aware they can do it and don't ever try it. All right. So normal people, and I don't know whether I should include myself and David as normal, but we could learn how to become remote viewers in theory. Well, in, in example, in your case, abnormal people can learn it, too. So. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for the yeah. Abby normal joke there. There you go. But, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I use the analogy. It's like, it's like any other complex human skill. For example, playing the piano. Um, now, you'll hear lots of folks say, well, I could never play the piano. Well, that's not true. Anybody can learn to play the piano as long as they've got all their fingers. And although some will learn it better than others, most people, the vast majority of people, if they get the right kind of instruction and practice and follow the correct principles, can end up playing the piano quite decently, enough so that they can accompany singing or people like to listen to them. Same thing applies to remote viewing. If you get the correct instruction and you practice diligently and you follow the right principles, you can end up being a pretty fair remote viewer, or if you will, in the old classical term, a clairvoyant. In the Paracast, we're talking to Paul Smith, author of Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. And now I'm curious, just reading the title, could you explain that? Yes, and I will right up front confess that the title is a bit of a misnomer. It, uh, it was chosen because of its uh, of how it sounds more than how accurate it is. We don't really actually remote, or I'm sorry, read people's minds, although it's also not that far off because... Remote viewing does allow access to people's mental contents. But the reason I, I, I 
that sounds confusing, but the reason I say it is because the, the standard idea of reading minds is the Hollywood model, where you can pick up on the person's thoughts, you know exactly what they're thinking, you know exactly what they intend to do, you know what they had for breakfast because they're thinking about it. You know, it, it, it's like getting this videotape of the person's thoughts. That is not what reading minds, in quotes again, is really all about. In remote viewing, when you pick up people's mental contents, you're not reading minds in that sense. You are picking up some of their intentions abstract things about them, what they, what their purposes in life may be, their intentions to some degree, but you couldn't get down and do a literal transcript of what they're thinking. It doesn't work that way. Um, so I titled my book Reading the Enemy's Mind because the idea was to use uh, the, the idea of the remote viewing program that the U.S. government had, and of course which I was a member of, the idea was to use mental powers that we all possess as humans to train soldiers and government civilians in the use of those powers and then to allow them to use their minds to go out and collect vital intelligence from enemies or potential threats around the world. And so, uh, in a sense, you're reading the enemy's mind, although there's a whole lot more to it than, than just that the common image that brings into, you know, into mind. So now, you, you've just indicated, Paul, that uh, you've had experience working for the government, and I assume that means the military in doing this. Can you expand upon that? Yes, actually, this whole thing emerged from a military context. Back in the um, 60s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency was getting really worried because the Soviet Union had some 40 or 50, well, I guess it was 40, is 40 some odd, uh, public institutions, we're talking about scientific research institutions, formally researching what we would call parapsychology, and they were spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars in doing that. And we had nothing to compare to that. So essentially, the CIA is worried that we're going to have a psychic gap, just like we had, at least assumed we had, a missile and a bomber gap in years previously. <laughs> okay, so they were worried about it. They themselves didn't necessarily believe in it, but they, it was clear that the Soviets did. And if there really was something to it, the CIA had an obligation to find out if it was a threat to the U.S. So that, that's where this all began. They found someone, um, and perhaps we'll go into that detail later, but found someone who's actually in a position to research this for the government in a government think tank, had clearances, had former intelligence experience, and had been doing some experiments in the field. And so they commissioned this person. His name was, was Putoff, Harold E. Putoff, um, a physicist, actually, and some other folks who were with him. And they, from that point on, they created this program to not just research uh, ESP, but to actually, eventually, through the military, apply it and use it to collect intelligence and it worked when you say it worked can you qualify that well, all right, yeah, I can qualify. I didn't work all the time, <laughs> okay? But then, of course, no intelligence collection methodology does work all the time. Although right. this didn't work for different reasons. Sometimes we were successful, sometimes we weren't. I was in that program for seven years, starting in 1983. Uh, the occasions didn't work. There's not much to say there. But there were a couple of very interesting results. One was, this is kind of a classic example, I'll tell you. And this happened before I got there, but I've got all the details on it. One of our viewers, Joe McMoneagle, uh, was his name, and uh, he's quite well known in the field, uh, was tasked to describe what was going on in this huge building that the Soviets had built in a shipyard at Svetovitz in the Soviet Union. 
The building had been built like a quarter of a mile from the water, which is very odd if you're going to build a ship. Usually you build it right on the water, but that wasn't the case here. And it was, it was an immense building. The, the uh, National Security Council, their intel analysts thought um, they're probably building an aircraft carrier in there because that was our big worry. The Soviets were going to build, you know, expand their power projection by building an, an aircraft carrier. So they thought they were building a carrier in there. Well, somebody else wasn't so sure, and they knew about the remote viewing program, so they uh, tasked the unit to describe using his remote viewing methodology what was going on in there. Now you have to remember, uh, or be aware anyway, at this point we knew nothing about what was going on in that building. The best our satellites could do was take a picture of the roof and we had not been able to get any human spies in there and certainly you weren't getting any radio transmissions that made any, made any sense coming out of it. So we had no idea, completely blank slate here. And they ran the, the viewers on it. Joe McMonigle described inside the building that there were submarines under construction. A couple smaller ones and then this other one he described, he says, this thing is really huge. It's like there's two submarines in one. It's immense. It has this flat, splayed-out stern, kind of like a whale. It's got uh, missile tubes, but the missile tubes are in front of the sail or the conning tower, uh, which, of course, that was totally heresy as far as naval architecture are concerned. Mm -hmm. You don't put missile tubes in front of a conning tower. Uh, at least that's presumption because it's a it, uh, weakness in the sub-design. As it's underway, it could scoop up water and all that kind of stuff, right? So Joe is reporting all these things. It's just are bizarre. Is a sub bigger than anything ever been built. It was designed in a very weird way, and the missile tubes are in the wrong place. And so they laughed at him. <laughs> okay, they said, I can't be. I can't be, and they rejected the data. So the final session that was done was 10 months. The last session was in 1979, I think. Anyway, 10 months after the final session was done and the project was wrapped up, the Soviets brought out some bulldozers and dug a quarter-mile channel from the back end of the building to the... Uh, to the bay and floated out the typhoon, which was the hugest submarine ever built. It has a big flat stern and the missile tubes are in front of the sail. Uh -oh. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Hey, let yeah. me just tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. A reminder, if you want to check out past episodes of the show, visit our website, theparacast.com, theparacast.com. And you can also check our message boards and you can send your emails to news at theparacast.com. And we'll be happy to hear from you, your suggestions, and we even write back, unlike some talk show hosts out there. <laughs> We're talking to Paul H. Smith. He has a lot to tell us about remote viewing, the ability to see what's going on in your mind in other places and in other times. And we're talking about the story about this large Soviet sub that turns out to be exactly what they predicted. So what happened then? Well, um, even more amazing in Joe's work was he produced a sketch 
of what he thought the submarine looked like, and it really matches very closely the actual appearance of the sub. And of course, remember, this was done at a time when no one in the American intelligence staff had any clue that that was being built in there. Hmm. And so it's clear, obviously, you can say double-blind, but it's really triple, quadruple blind, whatever, because there was no way that he could have gotten this information in any other way than through this remote viewing, power of his own mind kind of thing. Nothing happened, actually, except that uh, we were quite surprised by by this as a, as a uh, as a military community, I remember when the typhoon came out. This is before I was involved in remote viewing. had no idea Joe had done this. And I remember all of the uh, concern and excitement when they actually got satellite photos of the submarine. And uh, everybody's going, oh, man, this changes the whole balance of power, which in a way it did. So, that, you know, it's unfortunate that Joe produced absolutely accurate and correct information, and yet it was discounted because nobody believed it, which that happened a number of times. And I'll talk about some of those later on, perhaps. But uh, there were times, I mean, you, could, you can't really count, you can count that as being successful remote viewing, but not a successful intelligence operation because nobody paid attention. We did have some, however, that were successful and people did pay attention and they accomplished um, some real things. One of the more useful, I think, probably, uh, there was a, a period in time when we were used almost exclusively in counter-narcotics operations during the real height of the war on drugs uh, back in the hmm. late 80s. We, uh, in a number of occasions, they used our data, and we have this from people who weren't even in, I'm talking about operators here, the people who were actually on the ground doing the job were not affiliated with the remote viewing program, but used our data. We have one guy, an Army colonel, who was on the, uh, the staff of the uh, Intelligence Command, um, said, sort of came and told us directly, said, uh, contraband was recovered and narco-traffickers were actually apprehended based solely on the remote viewing data that you provided us in several instances. So, you know, that's pretty good feedback when they're actually making arrests and recovering cocaine and other contraband based on, on your data. And, you know, clearly they didn't have other intelligence. It could only have been the remote viewing data that provided that those apprehensions. So that was pretty good. So the way you're making this sound, um, it, it's almost as if this was an operation that was having some amount of traction, but it also sounds like it's not happening any longer. Is that true? That's right. Why? There's a, there's a lot of interesting sociological reasons for that. Um, it was successful. Uh, we did uh, probably about a third of the time we had data that was evaluated as of value or of high value, which mm -hmm. is pretty good as far as intelligence information is concerned. You know, uh, the satellite take only about 2% of it's of any use. And we're producing roughly 30% of our stuff was useful, right? That's significant. But, you know, that means that, that another 30% was marginal and a further 30% was totally useless. But, you know, that, that's something you live with in the intelligence community. But the problem was not so much the product we were producing, but the attitudes of the people in positions to uh, make decisions about whether the units was, uh, succeeded or not. There's one guy uh, is famous for having said, an official friend, he's famous for having said, this is the kind of thing I wouldn't believe even if it was true. <laughs> Whoa. So you run into the, and that is a documented statement. That is absolutely exactly what was said. You run into the fact that some people, it almost doesn't matter if it works because it is so uh, threatening to their worldview that they don't want anything to do with it. And when those people are in a position to call the shots, uh, your program is in trouble, let me tell you. And uh, that's essentially what happened. In 1994, Congress decided to move the remote viewing program from the Defense Intelligence Agency, where it had been homeported for a while, over to the CIA. They thought it made more sense than the CIA. The problem is the CIA didn't want it. And in fact, the director of the CIA at the time was Robert, uh, Robert Deutsch. 
think that's right. Deutsch is the last name anyway. I think it was Robert. This guy was famous for when he was Undersecretary of Defense. Yeah, Undersecretary of Defense. He was famous for throwing people out of his office if they even brought up the idea of remote viewing in a briefing. He did not have any tolerance whatsoever for it, and he was very biased against it. So he's director of CIA at the time that they're trying to affect the transfer of the unit from DIA to CIA, and you can imagine what might happen under those circumstances, exactly what did happen. The program was terminated, and, and all the viewers were sent back to their original institutional homes, <laughs> and they just didn't do it anymore. Uh, and that's the status of it right now. What about other countries, Paul? Is this something that's being pursued by other countries that have large intelligence gathering efforts? You know, that's a huge debate a lot of people are curious about. Uh, there is evidence, I think, uh, but unfortunately, well, for obvious reasons, it's circumstantial. These folks aren't going to talk about it if they're doing it. Mm -hmm. There's circumstantial evidence that the Japanese might be pursuing it as an intelligence collection tool. Uh, more interestingly, that the PRC, the, the, the People's Republic of China, may be pursuing remote viewing as a collection tool. Um, again, you know, that's pretty hard to get information, solid facts out of that, but the indicators are that they're at least playing around with it. I don't think the Russians are doing it anymore. Of course, you know, it was the Soviets that started this in the first place, but, you know, they're so strapped for cash and stuff when the, when the Iron Curtain came down that they were getting rid of anything that didn't have immediate benefit to them, and I, I don't think that they're doing this at the moment. You just wondered something with this amount of power, that you just put somebody in a room and they could see what's going on elsewhere, this would be almost a no-brainer for governments to do, and it seems strange that it would be lost in the bureaucracy or because of political considerations, and is it even that expensive to do? No, it is pretty cheap, but, you know, you have to consider human psychology in this. It doesn't fit into, if, if you can't figure out how it works, then one of two things. Either it doesn't work, even though it does. I mean, you see this in the skeptic community. There's huge evidence for, for ESP now, huge. It's, it's better attested than many of the fundamental scientific principles that we that we accept quite uh, easily in quantum physics. But nonetheless, uh, it's still rejected because they can't figure out what makes it work, and it just messes up their whole heads, and so they don't even think about it, and they reject it out of hand. So you run into that problem in psychology. The further thing is, it, it isn't magic. It isn't solve every problem. And in fact, there are times when it just falls flat on space, and you don't know why. And so there's a certain unreliability built into it that makes bean counters a little nervous. They want to be able to count on what they're doing, or if they can't count on it, they at least want to know why it didn't work. With a satellite, you know why it didn't work. You know, maybe there's cloud cover up, and you take a picture of the top of the clouds, not the facility underneath, right? So that, you understand why you didn't get a take on that. With remote viewing, sometimes it just doesn't work, and you have no idea why it didn't work, and that bothers people. And so I think because the two reasons, the psychology and also the worry about, well, are we going you know, can we rely on it? I think those two things made it much easier to get rid of and then not mess with again once they've gotten rid of it. Paul, I'm wondering, is there any technological component to this technique? Is there, besides the human who is doing the actual remote viewing, has there been any research into technological assistance, sort of the notion of if you have a radio, you can have these sideband amplifiers that basically mm -hmm. extend the range of the radio. Is there a comparable technological assist in the process of the technique of remote viewing? Not, not in the same sense as, uh, as your sideband amplification uh, idea. Obviously, when you're talking about a, a biological system, the human brain, trying to enhance that 
with a machine that's way beyond our capabilities at the moment. But they've been playing around with some things. Uh, one of the things, of course, that was explored, although not in the U.S. program, but apparently in the Soviet program, and I'd, I'd love to get the actual details on this, but so far they're, they're somewhere in the, in the KGB's archives, I think. Um, there's a persistent story around in the intelligence circles that the Soviets actually use psychoactive drugs to try and get their viewers to perform better. Hmm. And it was a apparently a market failure. Um, they apparently well burned out. I don't know what that means, but burned out some viewers trying to get them, you know trying to drug them up and get them to work better. The further problem is that that most psychoactive drugs are probably going to degrade performance rather than enhance performance. Hmm. Um, people want to say, well, gee, you know, if you can do this well, cold silver, why don't you try LSD or something along those lines. The fact is that that actually doesn't work as well. Uh, what you do is generate more mental noise, which is the big issue with remote viewing. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And a reminder, if you're new to the show, you can write to us, news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, or visit our website, theparacast.com. Got to remember that T-H-E ahead of the word Paracast, theparacast.com, where we have discussion forums. We can talk about this and other topics. We're talking to Paul H. Smith, and his book is called Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. And we're talking now about the signal-to-noise ratio of remote viewing. So a certain percentage of the impressions you get are not to be relied upon. Is that the biggest problem? That's right. Here's where human psychology in a different way intrudes. In the actual doing of remote viewing, there's this phenomenon we call mental noise. And it consists of a lot of different, comes from a lot of different sources. But the worst one is something we call analytical overlay, which is abbreviated AOL. <laughs> applause to... here, folks. Let's just have... yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Steve Case rolls in his grave. Oh no, he's not dead yet. Okay, now Steve Case is still uh, being uh, casing a, another business or something. I'm not sure. Okay. Probably. Right. Yeah. It has nothing to do with an on- online service, but AOL analytical overlay. All that means is that your left brain, the, the hemisphere that we normally associate with conscious awareness in the brain the left brain its job is to parse data that comes in and and make and interpret the information that we're receiving as to whether it's you know what it means to us it gives the meaning to the sensory impressions we get 
so it, and normally it works pretty well in everyday life we're getting a lot of information from our environment and the left brain is accustomed to dealing with that kind of information and it passes good judgment it tells us whether something is an opportunity or a threat or, or neutral etc and tells us what it means the problem when you get uh, with remote viewing is you're talking about a very narrow bandwidth of information because it's competing with all the other channels of, of data that come into our, our brains and so you get this little bit of data come in, and the left brain doesn't get enough to work with. But it gets that, and it, has, it feels like its job is to assign a meaning to it. And so it will tell you, oh, well, yeah, what you're perceiving is X, when what you're really perceiving is Y. <laughs> okay. So an example, um, let's say uh, we're dealing with a practice target. You're learning how to promote you, and your instructor gives you the Eiffel Tower as a target. Now, the first thing to know about this is that the viewer does not have any, is not told has no conscious knowledge of what the target is. We go to great lengths not to what we call front load the viewer. In other words, we don't let them know what the target is. They have to discover that for themselves. And we do that usually by just signing an arbitrary label to, um, to what the target is. So for example, if I want you to remote view the Eiffel Tower, I will give you a number, 8675309, let's say, as an example, an arbitrary number. And that will, in, I'll write down a piece of paper, 8675309 equals describe the Eiffel Tower. Okay. Now, I'll tear the paper in half, maybe, and I'll give you the number, but I won't give you the part that says describe the Eiffel Tower. That I'll keep hidden away so you have no idea that's what it is. And so a remote viewer, in a way, has to be psychic two different ways. First thing is it has to see the number, and then the viewer's subconscious mind has got to go out and find out what that number has to do with. Discovers Eiffel Tower, and then the process is that you bring in, the information comes in through the subconscious, just like all sensory information does, comes in through the subconscious and gets fed up into conscious awareness, and then the viewer starts describing the target. Okay, well, it starts off very thinly. Uh, so the viewer perceives, you know, maybe a few girders and a few rivets and that it's metal and that there's crisscrossing elements and it's black and hard and kind of goes up in the air. Well, that describes the Eiffel Tower, but it also describes the bridge the viewer crossed on the Mississippi River last year. And so the left brain, looking around to see something that resembles what's just been described, says, oh, I know the target is a bridge. And so that's the image the viewer gets in his mind, is of a bridge. When in actuality, it's Eiffel Tower. You can see the similarity, but you can see the false conclusion that the left brain has jumped to because it didn't have enough information to go on. It's kind of like being in a conversation with someone and someone else comes up and hears the last three words of a sentence and thinks they know what the conversation's all about and starts talking about something entirely different. It's that sort of thing. And that's going on in our heads all the time when we're dealing with this kind of stuff. All right, that's so, telling me that this entire technology isn't reliable. Is there a way to make it reliable enough that you can depend on intelligence information? Yes, and that was part of what we were taught when we were you know, we were recruited, and then we went through this long training process to learn the skills necessary to be able to increase our accuracy as remote viewers. And uh, there are ways of recognizing analytical overlay. First of all, you recognize circumstances in which it crops up. You recognize false images when they come in, and you learn to discard those and and dig behind them to find the actual the actual data. So, for example. We'll go back to the Eiffel Tower thing. Target's Eiffel Tower, you get crisscrossing girders and rivets. Your left brain says, oh, this is a bridge. Well, you can recognize the characteristics of that conclusion that the left brain's jumped to, and you can discard it. You write it out on the right side of the paper, AOL break bridge, and you get rid of it because you know that it's false. 
okay, just because of its characteristics. And then what you do put down is crisscrossing girders, rivet, or what you say, um, crisscrossing black metallic long AOL breaker reminds me of girders, and you keep on going down. And as you get deeper in the process, the data stream actually gets wider. You get more information to work with, and the judgments the left brain makes start to get better. And ultimately, you start making sketches. You can even make uh, models, clay models, or out of other things, uh, you know, three-dimensional models of the target. In fact, have you seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Oh, yeah. The movie, yeah. Richard Dreyfuss making Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. That's stage six in remote viewing. <laughs> <laughs> so you can actually make models of targets. Now, again... In mashed potatoes. Point, well, yeah. We don't work with those. You know, they track bugs. But, but uh, you know, we do use modeling clay a lot and other kinds of billing materials like that. Uh, but, again, it's not always accurate, but the methodology that, that we learned actually increases the accuracy. There'll be times when you're still wrong, but your chances of being right have gone up significantly by the time you've gotten through the course and got a lot of practice under your belt. And so that's the biggest challenge. The challenge isn't so much picking up the signal, whatever it is that comes in. The challenge is keeping your left brain out of it, except to the degree it needs to be involved, so that you can give an accurate notion of it. Ultimately, you probably, in doing the, the Eiffel Tower session, you probably wouldn't necessarily even identify it as the Eiffel Tower. But you could make a pretty reasonable sketch of it, certainly of parts of it, and describe it quite accurately so that someone else, in comparing the data, could realize that you really have picked up data and you might get some useful information, too. Although, you know, there's not much useful about the Eiffel Tower as far as an intelligence operation, but in other circumstances it could be. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking about remote viewing with Paul Smith, author of Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. If you go to rviewer.com, that's rviewer.com, also linked at our website, you can get more information. Another reminder, if you like to have your letters reach us, send it to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, or check our website, theparacast.com. Podcast.com, where we have message boards and lots of excitement going on. David. Paul, you uh, mentioned being taught in these techniques. Uh, I'm wondering about that. You're saying that when you were working with the military on this, that there were people there that were teaching you how to fortify these techniques. Who were these people? Well, um, when I was recruited for the program, uh, they had just uh, let a contract. It was not the first contract, but it was the most recent one, the most advanced one, with uh, Stanford Research Institute which by then was called SRI International. Of course, that, that was a uh, major think tank out on the West Coast, still is, that had been spun mm -hmm. off from Stanford University. In their radio, see, radio physics lab, I think it was called, they had this special consciousness research program. That was where Hal Putoff was resident, and he had some other folks working with him. Uh, among them was a guy named Ingo Swan, who uh, is quite famous these days out in ESP circles because he was the guy who actually invented the term remote viewing and started the first steps in developing it. And he and Putoff worked together along with several other folks like Ed May and in fact Dean Radin was even there for a while for folks who know Dean. And he and Hal particularly though worked together and developed this methodology which uh, now today is called controlled remote viewing. Uh, the idea is you take control 
of the process and and uh, and squeeze the actual data out of it and try and reject all the bad stuff, right? So uh, anyway, they they had put a program together and the government had contracted with them. So my training started with Hal Putoff. But the major trainer was Ingo Swan, who had uh, developed a good share of this and understood the process. And so I and uh, three other, well, actually all together, four other folks were trained up in this during uh, from 83 uh, through 84. And uh, and then when we came back to the unit, it became our job then to train new trainees in the methodology. Uh, for various reasons, we didn't have access to SRI anymore. Uh, so we we became the trainers. Question I always have when we talk about secret government programs and stuff, and that is, why isn't the government calling up Paul Smith and saying, uh-uh, don't talk about that, or are they just leaving you alone because they think, uh, well, this is weird enough, why bother? That's <laughs> a little of the former, former, but in fact, they kind of got stuck in their own trap here because... Uh, the CIA didn't want to do it. They went public and said, this not only doesn't work, it never worked. And they they had a research uh, contract out there for, for uh, a team of investigators to, to examine the data, supposedly, and find out whether whether there's any value to it. Well, the data was cooked. It was The, the conclusion was decided before this, the study was even done. In fact, the study wasn't even started until after the program had been shut down. Hmm. Interestingly enough, and I can get into that later if necessary. But but the bottom line was the CIA here is claiming it doesn't work, and so if somebody is out there talking about it, and the CIA comes along and says, "Okay, you're not allowed to talk about that anymore," they are in fact contradicting their themselves, and their and the evidence then would be would point more to the fact that it really does work. The CIA was just lying to us in the first place. So, so if you mean so, they lie, <laughs> yeah, you know, it never happens, does it? <laughs> Well, here's the thing, though, Paul. I mean, uh, okay, the CIA wants to say this is not real, this is not legitimate. So Paul Smith goes and does a remote viewing session and comes up with a pretty damn good idea of where bin Laden is hiding in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Paul then goes to the Pakistani officials, hands them this information, Mm -hmm. they grab bin Laden, and they attribute this to Paul Smith's remote viewing. At that point, how can the CIA possibly say this isn't for real, and why don't you do that? Well, first of all, I found out a long time ago that doing stuff freelance and then submitting it, so to speak, on speculation is a totally worthless and waste of time because unless they come to you and ask you to do it, if you go to them with data, they will not even pay attention. You cannot really? get it into the system. It's If you think about it like a police department, let's say there's this high-profile murder and the police comes to a psychic and says, can you help us find this person? There'll be a detective assigned to the psychic. The psychic will provide information, they will actually check out the data that the psychic provides, right? Mm-hmm. But now let's turn the tables. There's a high-profile murder. The police are working on it. 1,500 psychics all send in their tips saying this is where the, the body is or this is who the murder is, whatever, and all of them are contradictory, right? Now, one or two of them might actually be right, but right. how's the police department going to know that? And the fact is they didn't even ask these folks, and this is just stuff coming in from an unattributable source. They have no idea how reliable these folks are. They do not have the manpower to chase it down, and so they just uh, file 13, a whole bunch of them. Right. That happens all the time. One of my friends actually was one of the remote viewers in the unit, in fact, commanded the unit for uh, about a year and a half. And when he retired from the Army, he went to work as a counterintelligence agent for, for the U.S. government. And um, where he works out of, although right now he's actually in Iraq, but <laughs> but when he's stateside, uh, where he works, he has to liaison with all the FBI folks. Well, he was talking to the agent in charge of uh, a whole state, you know, the state agent in charge at one point. And this person didn't know that he was 
a um, had been a remote viewer, and somehow the topic of remote viewing came up, and this person just this FBI agent just went bonkers to find out how worthless all that stuff was and how much trouble it was because they get they get these voluntary tips from remote viewers and they come in and they sound fairly plausible and then they have to dedicate agent hours to go out and check them out and they never turned out is what this person says okay and uh, apparently we're, we're talking hundreds or even thousands of these kind of tips that, that are you know just low grade often useless information but here's the problem with all of this it's because so many people who themselves think of themselves as being psychic or has have taken one or two remote viewing courses, they all of a sudden they think that they can do anything, and so they will attempt to solve these major problems, and uh, and their their data is often bad. So what happens is the whole field gets a bad rep because a whole bunch of folks who don't know really know what they're doing are trying to jump in and solve these cases, and uh, the authorities are just kind of snowed under by all of these tips they can't do anything with. So what people don't realize is that actually to do one of us a successful remote viewing session actually requires a team effort and requires actually quite a bit of energy and time and resources to do it right. Again, part of it has to do because the information is is sometimes flaky and you have to know how to do error correction, you have to know how to do proper analysis. And when we were most successful for me, it was when we had a dedicated team that spent their whole time doing that and we produced some really good results. But because that was because we knew how it worked and we were working as a team. You know, I look at the possibility here that a private detective learns remote viewing and he solicits clients and a client comes to him and says, well, okay, I want to see if my husband or my wife is cheating on me. Can you remote view the XM hotel at 3 p.m. and see whether he's having a rendezvous? Is this being done? Can this be done? There are some private detectives that have learned the technique. Um, there are some other folks. There are even some police departments who have, who have played around with it a bit and gotten actually some of their officers trained by some folks. How successful it is, I don't know, because the irony is here, even if they really have a great success, they don't talk about it, uh, because there's a lot of proprietary stuff going on here, maybe there's court cases involved, and so, and further, there's the issue of they don't want to be labeled as a kook just because they're using this methodology. It wouldn't stop them from doing it privately, but it might stop them from acknowledging it. I don't know how well they've done or whether they've succeeded. The scenario you painted actually doesn't work very well, though, uh, because if the detective, or let's say, you said a PI, then you know, um, an investigator, somebody comes and says, what's my wife doing? Can you remove you X? That person then is front-loaded. <laughs> I said we try to avoid being front-loaded in these cases, and the reason for that is not because it makes it easier to remote view. It makes it harder. Um, if you think, okay, so I, if you had told the viewer in the Eiffel Tower example, okay, now your mission is to remote view the Eiffel Tower. First of all, of course, that's not a very good test yeah. to begin with. But, but nonetheless, let's say that it was some obscure thing that the, you know, the viewer had never heard of before. Even then, it would be a problem because any you know, possible bit of memory, something that person read, the viewer read, or anything they could conjecture or guess about it would be right there. The left brain would be on it just like that. And so knowing what the target is up front can lead to a whole bunch of upfront overlay that obscures the actual signal. So for good operational reasons, you don't want the viewer to know what the target is uh, just so that all of that extra noise doesn't get added in. Hmm. 
Um, now, there are ways to work around that. I mean, an investigator can, can uh, be trained in remote viewing and then have someone else who is also trained, and then they trade projects. So the one calls up the other and says, I have a project for you. Here's a number. <laughs> okay. Gives them an arbitrary number, then, you know, turn about as fair play when the other person has something wants done and call back. So there's ways around it. But it's still, uh, you have to be real careful if you're going to remote view not to be front-loaded. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.com. Net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to contact us, send your message, not via remote viewing, <laughs> but to news at theparacast.com because David and I won't see it if you remote view. Okay? It just it won't happen. You'll see it, but we won't see the message. Or you can visit our website at theparacast.com and check out our message boards. We're talking to Paul Smith, author of Reading the Enemy's Mind Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage Program. We're going to go on for another segment, but before I do Paul, you mm-hmm. have that site, Remote Viewing Instructional Services, rviewer.com, where you train people how to do this. How does that work? Well, very well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> people can take my courses. Uh, it's fairly expensive, but it's also uh, fairly very intensive. Um, it's a five-day course. Uh, you come to Austin, Texas. Uh, it's a basic course. You spend three days. You have one day down because you need some recovery time, and then you have the final day. And these are long days. They they can be as long as ten hours, ten to twelve hours long. And they you come and I I teach you the process. First of all, the theory, how we think it works. Second of all, then you well we go through a bunch of different levels so you can learn how to deal with a mental noise issue, what real perceptions are like, what false perceptions are like, um, how to record your data, what to do with it when you're done, that sort of thing. It's a very rigorous course. Um, and uh, I also, by the way, try and keep my student-teacher ratio low. I usually only take two students per instructor. So you get a lot of personal attention if you come to take my courses. So what's expensive? What are we talking about? Uh, 2K per person. That's expensive. Yeah, it is. Although, actually, if you look at uh, you know standard executive training, it's actually cheap. But for most people's budgets, it's not cheap. I, I acknowledge that. But because I don't have economy of scale, because I only do two people at a time, which I think is how you really have to train this, um, in order just to make it work for me economically, I have to charge that much. But, you know, again, there's a lot of direct personal attention in this. So. Um, I do also uh, offer other courses if people are interested. There's one called Associative Remote Viewing, which you might find interesting. This is the uh, essentially a mode of remote viewing where you actually predict the future. It's in a kind of a limited way, but it, would allow, it does allow you to predict uh, whether a stock is going to go up or down. It allows you to predict whether a certain currency is going to go up or down. It will allow you to pr- predict which of two sports teams will win a game. Within between, well, somewhere between 65 and 80% accuracy, depending on how good and how practiced you are. 
you can predict those kinds of things. And that, that's an associative remote viewing course uh, that I also offer. Does Paul Smith predict anything? Can you predict something? I, I could if um, I had geared up to do that. Um, I could do an ARV on, let's see, well, you do it now. I can't do that yet. I was going to say you do an ARV who's going to, who's going to uh, be president, but you can't do that because you don't know who the players are yet. You have to wait and see who the nominees are. But once you, for example, if you, um, in the Bush-Kerry race, you could have done an associative remote viewing on that and determined that Bush was going to win with a 78% degree accuracy. You know, in advance, once the nominees were officially announced, you could do that. And, of course, um, as I said, you could do stock. You know, it's not going to go up or down. Do I want to sell or buy? You can make those kinds of decisions based on on this associative process. Now, every once in a while, are we talking about time now? You want to you talk about time in remote viewing? I think it's a good time, yes. <laughs> you know, of course, uh, there's two things that people always want you to do when you find out you're psychic. They want you to either find something that's missing or they want you to predict the future, right? Uh, and sometimes it's even both. <laughs> but but um, predicting the future isn't really as easy to do as as the media might portray it to be or some of the popular television shows and things like that. In fact, it's one of the hardest things to do for anybody being psychic, and I think that has to do not with the actual uh, modality of ESP and and human consciousness. I think it has to do with the nature of time itself. Um, All the evidence in in the remote viewing experimentation points to the future not being settled yet. Of course, there are, there are models of time that have the future as being fixed, and it's already happened, and just we have to move our, our own personal timelines along it to find out what happened. Right? Remote viewing suggests that's not true. It suggests that the, uh, the braided future model is more accurate, where you have all these possible futures going out there, none of which are real yet, but any one of which could be activated depending on what happens in the present. Okay. In that case, of course, predicting the future becomes very difficult because you could accurately remote view a possible future outcome and then have that not happen. And then, of course, you're wrong, right, according to anybody who, uh, who sees it, says, oh, you were wrong, you missed that one, but maybe not. Maybe you just picked up on a possible future that ended up not becoming the real future. Well, of course, we could also look at that and say, actually, all those futures exist in parallel universes. Right, string theory would postulate that. Right, you, you got the parallel universe uh, theory as well, and who knows which one's real? But okay, so maybe you pick up on a parallel universe theory. I'm sorry, I'm sorry feature that actually doesn't exist in this one. So, uh, in either case, you end up being wrong, even though you might not technically be wrong. You still haven't satisfied what needs to be done. But every once in a while, it works, and and there's no way of figuring out, as far as I've been able to tell, what when that's going to be. One particular instance of that was probably the best remote viewing session I've ever ever had. Uh, it was a huge success. Uh, again, one that didn't work out in the intelligence community because nobody believed it. But I was being targeted on what we call a directed search. In other words, there wasn't a specific target to go for. The tasking was uh, describe whatever uh, describe whatever event in the next few hours or pre, I'm sorry next few days is most important for us to know about okay so that was the tasking describe something that's going to happen that's very important for us to know about my subconscious read that as us as the Department of Defense or the United States uh, and of course I didn't know that was the tasking I was just giving a, given a number again like I described before so I get this this number I sit down I start doing the process and I start off first of all getting an impression of a metallic structure and then I get the idea it's surrounded by water and then I realize it's moving through the water 
And then I had this AOL of an American destroyer. Turned out not to be AOL, as a matter of fact. And uh, the impression was it was at night, and this vessel moving through the water was in a in a constricted area with sand on around it, and out in the middle of the water, ways out, but still the, the water body was bordered by sand. A little bit later on, I got this impression that there was an aircraft flying around at some distance from the vessel, and then the aircraft dropped these two round cylinders with stubby little wings, and it made guttering noises. And these things flew around, and all of a sudden they connected with the vessel, and there was a big smoke and flame and people screaming, and the vessel tipped to one side and there's all kinds of crumpled metal and stuff. And, and so I'm going on and on like this, right? And uh, the, the, the guy who was working with me, who, of course, didn't know what I was getting either, says, hmm, well, where did the airplane come from? And I described the flat area next to the sea and that it was being controlled from a third-world kind of city far inland. Got the impression they were speaking Arabic, although I called that AOL as well. Hmm. Um, anyway, so I got this whole scenario, right, which basically, okay, you tell me, what does that sound like? Sounds like a cruise missile hit on a uh, on a ship that's exactly right so this is a friday right and uh my monitor who actually had expected something else says well i'm i'm pretty gonna have to end this uh, i i think you're off but that's okay you, you know nobody's on all the time so you know we went home for the weekend and then uh, monday morning early i get this phone call from skip atwater operations officer he says Hey, Paul, where's that uh, session you did on Friday? And I say, it's in the safe, but why do you care? I was off. And he said, oh, you haven't looked at the papers yet, have you? <laughs> I said, no. So I pick up the newspaper, front page, Washington Post, um, USS Stark, uh, a frigate, U.S. Uh, frigate, naval frigate, was hit by Exocet missiles fired by an Iraqi Mirage fighter. And, uh, in fact, uh, my remote viewing session, I was able to compare it to the actual after-action report the Navy filed uh, a few years later. Uh, the session was unbelievably accurate. It was right on. I described the scenario down to exactly everything that happened. Uh, I've never had a session that good before or since. I mean, it was just an amazing session, and it was a future session. It had, I did the session 50 hours before the event actually took place. You know where we're missing the boat, David? We should have Paul remote view Steve Jobs of Apple Computer. As we know, Steve Jobs of Apple Computer keeps the new product announcements close to the vest, but a remote viewer watching what Apple's doing, we could learn lots of things, <laughs> don't you think, Paul? Well, yeah, done right, you actually might be able to. In fact, there's been some talk about using this as an, in industrial espionage, or as they call it, competitive intelligence. <laughs> of course, certain, certain, amount, uh, or certain acts in industrial espionage are illegal. The other side of it, proving that you did it when you're using remote viewing is pretty tough. Really, to do. really tough. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, Joseph McMonagall, and uh, I looked him up on the web while we've been online with you, and it turns out that he indeed has a company in Virginia with his wife uh, running a remote viewing business specifically aimed at the corporate world. It's called Intuitive Intelligence Applications. So I guess that uh, he's engaged in using his skills for just that. Yeah, of course, you know, I'm sure he's cautious about how he does that. He's, he's a very principled guy. But, uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, I and my company have even done some of this stuff. We don't do a lot because it's hugely time-consuming and it requires a lot of people. And I have other um, other fish to fry. Mm. I'd say other uh, cats to skin, but I got in trouble from a PETA person once by using that uh, that phrase. <laughs> and we don't want you to do anything illegal. That's right. We're just speaking out loud because we do that. But, you know, we just run off on the mouth and things happen. Well, we like to piss off Scientologists, but uh, the PETA people will leave alone for today. <laughs> What's up with all that pita bread action, anyway? But now, 
here's the thing, Paul. Let me let me ask a, a skeptical, a slightly skeptical question. So let's assume that you can do this precognitive uh, uh, technique to look very shortly into the future. Mm-hmm. Are you not using this to fatten your bank account by playing the stock market and using these skills? I have done that actually. Um, although what we're, what we're doing, our target was actually sports betting. It's actually more lucrative. Um, hmm. I uh, was working a project like that with uh, my late partner, Gabriel Pettengel, uh, and it was quite successful. Although, interestingly, you can be right and still lose money, which we didn't understand up front. How's that? Uh, you, you have to cover the spread, and I don't even know the, the technicalities of all that, but you have to, you can get the, pick the right winning team, and yet if you don't get the point spread right, you can lose money still, and I don't know, it's all very complicated. You can also lose money getting the stock picks right if you don't allow for uh, sufficient margins and, and you know that sort of thing. I mean, if you if you get yes, the stock is going up, but you don't build into your tasking how much, uh, you can end up getting a stock that only goes up marginally and lose money on the commission. <laughs> so, hmm. so there's a trick to it. But we were doing sports betting, um, and that ended unfortunately when she was killed in a car wreck. That was a very uh, regrettable mm, thing. Wow. But. Uh, mm. Um, and I didn't bother to try and collect any of the winnings. I just left that with her, fa- her family. But I was working with another guy, and we were having uh, pretty good success with that, too. Um, I was not so much in it for the money, really. Um, in fact, as a viewer, I didn't want to even be associated with the money. Because what happens is, if you're remote viewing and you know what, what the money is on and the magnitude of the investment, um, you start getting emotionally involved. And when you get emotionally involved, it messes up your viewing. Hey, you start- I don't want to mess up this, but we're just about running out of time. So let me ask you one more time, Paul Smith, tell folks where they can learn more about the things that you do. Well, um, of course, my own website. We're talking about my training and have a lot of information about remote viewing available. You can go to, of course, the three W's dot rviewer.com. That's uh, R and then the word viewer, R-V-I-E-W-E-R.com. Um, a lot of information there. Um, I wear another hat that I'm also the now the president of the nonprofit International Remote Viewing Association. It's, uh, in a way, I guess you could say Chamber of Commerce for Remote Viewing. Um, and that website, for people who are other, interested in other background information about remote viewing, is, uh, again, the three W's, dot I-R-V-A dot org. And i got to tell you real quick about another commercial enterprise I've got. Um, worried about what we call a search problem, trying to find things that are missing. Again, that's the thing that remote viewing isn't really the best at. Dowsing, however, we integrated into the remote viewing methodology and proved to be fairly useful. So uh, we're developing a a DVD-based dowsing course, and people can find out about that and pre-order it. We had a substantial discount if they're interested. Uh, The website for that is learndowsing.com. So, uh, yeah, learn, dowsing, uh, run together, and then the dot com. Hey, thanks for joining us. Paul Smith on the Paracast. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Great. That was great, Paul. Thank you. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandney. You never know what's going to happen next. Just a reminder, if you want to get a hold of us here at the PowerCast, send your email to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. We also invite you to visit our online forums. Go to thepowercast.com and click on the links to our message forums. We welcome you aboard. 
Hey, I want to thank everyone for joining us on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney this week. If you missed any part of the program, no problem. When you go to our website, you can download your favorite episodes always free from theparacast.com. We'd also like to welcome a new member to our growing staff here at the Paracast, none other than Tim Beckley, known affectionately to his friends as Mr. UFO. Tim Beckley joins our show as an associate producer, which means he'll help us find new great guests and he'll bring us lots of surprises. So welcome aboard, Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO. Coming up in future episodes, we'll hear from Lauren Coleman, the expert on cryptozoology, which is the great subject that investigates Sasquatch and all that stuff. Also coming up, Dr. Nick Bakich will appear on the Paracast to talk about mind control technology for the 21st century. Angels don't play this harp and other subjects coming up on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.